part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're going through, we started last week, and we said it was about a 35,000 foot view because we're kind of flying by each one of these saints of Christ. Um, merit not only just a, a sermon all by themselves, but easily we could do a series just on each one. But we're handling seven different sayings of Christ on the cross in three weeks. And even then, we're, we're kind of not skipping over some, but we're giving really a lot of attention next week. I'll tell you uh, up front what the, the sermon will be. Really focusing on those words, it is finished. What, what really happened? What does it mean, it is finished? What's the application of Easter, of these whole events, that Christ would die for us, rise again? What does that mean in everyday life for the Christian today? So next week we'll be really celebrating big uh, just what Christ has accomplished and look at, you know, what is finished. And, but before we get there, we're going to look at a few more. Last week, if you were with us, we looked first back to, to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, you know, this cross this gospel, he said it's really folly in some translations. In other words, foolishness. To, when they look at, why would a God do this? And they said they look at it and they said it's foolishness, it's folly. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross, or the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And we begin to see that, you know, you could not be more diametrically opposed in these things foolishness, folly to one, and they said to others, it's just the very power. You know, that's one thing I've noticed in all these years of ministry and just many years of life, that people aren't kind of in the middle about when it comes to the cross, when it comes about their spiritual beliefs. They're either kind of way over here and they really are going, you know, this is the very power by which I live, this is my breath every day, or it really has kind of no place in their life whatsoever, maybe even considered to be folly or foolishness to them. See, it's one of those things that you really can't be indifferent about Jesus. Throughout his ministry, you know, Jesus was asking me, who do you say that I am? Not to what others say that I am. Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question that you would ever attain in your entire life. Who do you say that Christ is? And one answer that is not sufficient, guys, is kind of this place in the middle, you know, well, you know, I think he is really a special person or this, that, and the other. You know, it, it really is. You, there's a definitive, man, I've placed all of my trust and my faith in the work of God's own Son. Or it's going to be one of those things you're kind of, I mean, even some of the great theologians like C.S. Lewis said, you know, if you don't believe that, then you're foolish to even waste one moment to give your attention to Jesus. Now, it, this is coming from a sold-out Christian. But he said, you know, if you really don't believe that this is who Christ was, the Son of God, he said, you're, you're kind of wasting your time. He said, but the one thing that you can't be when it comes to Christianity and the claims of Christ, he said, you can't be indifferent about it. You can't kind of get this middle ground. Because either he really was the Lord or he was a liar or a lunatic. It's a wonderful, wonderful way of kind of keeping that in the perspective that there's not this middle ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. Well, we have been looking through these. uh, Last week we looked at uh, uh, a couple passages where Christ called out, Father, forgive them. We see one of the first things that Jesus does on the cross is he prays. And who does he pray for? He prays for the people there. He's already prayed in John 17 another prayer for all of the current Christians or believers, but also future believers. And so he begins to this prayer of forgiveness. And we see that the cross truly is, what is this message of the cross? It's one of forgiveness, 
but it's also one of hope. Because we notice that there was two thieves, one on each side, both rightly convicted of their crimes, and they both began that day scoffing and mocking Christ. It makes it very clear in the scripture that both really started the day wondering who this guy in the middle cross was. But by the end of the day, as we went through the scriptures last week, this one noticed that there was just something that's different, and he stopped mocking Jesus. And even when the other thief continued to mock, he said, what are you doing? He said, don't you notice that there's something different about him? We are dying justly for our crimes. We, we did the crime. This man has done nothing. We, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And we take that as a kind of a proclamation of his faith. If he believes that Jesus has a kingdom, he really does believe that he's the savior of the world. He doesn't have a theology degree. He doesn't have it all figured out. He just knows, you know, I believe that you are special, that in my elementary understanding, that you are this one that you claim to be. And you remember the words of Christ, this message of hope. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So, so far, this message of the cross is a message of forgiveness. It's a message of hope. And we continue this morning, and we're going to go to another book of the Bible. Remember, we said that there's not one of the Gospels that kind of takes us A to Z through the, the last events of Christ. That what we have to have is what we call the harmony of the Gospels. We take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we take those four different Gospels, and they each tell a story from a kind of a different perspective, and we put them together, and we get what we call a harmony of the Gospels. And we see more and more a complete picture of those last days of Christ. So if you'd open up to, uh, again, John chapter 19... In verse 25, we see that uh, Christ is already on the cross, and uh, he, he is in pain. He, the, the agony of what he's been through, we cannot even begin to relate to. And before him are four women. Three of them are named Mary. Must have been a very, very popular name in that day. And, uh, and then also, uh, you know, but there's four there. We see uh, Jesus' mother there at the cross. And she's having to witness the horror of seeing her son, even though she knows. I mean, I think she's thinking back 30-plus years. Hey, when that angel came and told me that I would be giving birth to the Savior of the world, that this is the culmination of that. And yet, I don't have to convince a single mom in here that it is beyond what we can even conceive as a parent that we would see our son. Because one thing that I've figured out about parenthood so far in 56 years is they may be 30, 31, 32, and they're still my baby. Okay? You, and every parent, we understand that. Even this morning, I remarked that there are several of our children outgrowing in length uh, of our parents. And, but is that always going to be your baby? Always. 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 <laughs> and so here this mom is. I mean, don't gloss over this, guys. Don't take the humanity out of it just because it's the Bible and just because we're going, okay, this is the story. This is how it's supposed to go down. I'm familiar with it. Yes, this is his mom. This is his real mom. Predestined before the beginning of the world. This isn't a surprise. And yet, please don't gloss over that your mom is, is there in front of you. Look what it says in verse 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, who just happens to be the one who's writing this gospel, so how convenient for him to say, you know, I'm the one that Jesus loved. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. So he looks down and he, I guess he catches the eyes of, of Mary. And he says, okay, woman, mom. And then he points over to John. Or at least, I mean, he can't point, he's nailed to a cross. But, but he, he looks over to John and says, okay, woman, behold, this is your, this is your son. In other words, he's going to take care of you from this point on. Now, why did he do this? A couple of things. Number one, there's a commandment in the law. Honor your mother and your father, okay? It's one of the ten biggies, okay? And so in Jesus, the remarkable thing, guys, look, he's in agony. He's dying for us, and yet he's obedient to the law. This is really, really important. That we see the obedience of Christ to the law. He fulfills the law. He's not a servant to the law. No, he is the master of the law. I mean, he is over all those things. And yet to the very end, he's observing the law. He's very much doing what the law of God says. But there's a second thing that really doesn't come across all the time in our culture because many of you probably didn't grow up in the Jewish culture. But in the Jewish culture, it was the oldest son's responsibility if the father had passed if the father was gone and by this time we do believe that Joseph uh, his earthly father has passed and so Mary is a widow and it was the oldest son's responsibility to make sure that the mom was going to be taken care of and so this has fallen upon Jesus now you might say well didn't he have some brothers he did the scripture talks us about that he wasn't the the only son He, he had some brothers But they were not believers at this time. They later on become believers after the resurrection. It's kind of an amazing thing. They had to kind of go through the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus before they became believers. But they eventually become believers. But at this point, he turns to John. He turns to his mom. Behold. Woman, behold your son. And then, verse 27, then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. It's an amazing thing. I I, I am a self-proclaimed baby when I get sick. We didn't need an amen right there. Okay, we really didn't. I'm sorry. And yet every every wife here, you know. Let's not so gloss over this event that we trivialize all that Christ is going through. I mean, he, I cannot even begin to imagine the pain, the sorrow, uh, the, the Father. We don't know when the saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know where that falls in these seven sayings. It may have, some would say that it's already been sad. Others would say it's going to come kind of right after this. But there is such emotional pressure. There's all kinds of physical pressure. There's everything that you, torment of every capacity is upon Jesus. And yet he looks out there and says, Okay, Mom, behold your son. John, take care of my mom. That's amazing. That's amazing that with all this weight upon him, that he's still obedient to the law, he's fulfilling scripture, he's doing everything. He's taking care of those that he loves. I'll never forget the last earthly days of my dad's life. I may have shared this story once. 
the dad really wanted to go home from the hospital. We thought, you know, he just wants to be home. Because who likes hospitals? You need know, rather be at home. And, and yet we were not given that uh, choice with my dad. His uh, condition had deteriorated pretty quickly there at the end. And yet he was pretty persistent. And so one day, just he and I were there, and, and I had to talk, and, and I figured it out. Dad did not know that this was going to be his final days. He still thought he had weeks. We thought he maybe had months. And Dad had left some unfinished business in his business drawer there. You know, there was, we even found later, we found one of the most beautiful letters to my mom that you've ever read. And yet it was unfinished. It was three-fourths of the page, and you could tell that there was still more to be completed. But there were some business things that, you know, and guys and gals, you know, for those that kind of take care of some of the business things in your household, you know this. The man, okay, maybe I, I can, you know, he knew where he's going to go to heaven, okay, but he wanted to take care of his business. I get that as a guy. I get that as a husband. I get that as a father. I want to take care of my business. But God did not afford us that opportunity, so I, I, we talked about it, and I came in the next day and, uh, with a notebook, and, and seven or eight pages later with just all the details. Okay, Dad, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want me to do this? What's the bank account number on this? And we just went, we went through everything. And after we were done, my dad's spirit just lifted. This sense of responsibility, this, I need to take care of my business. When that was kind of done, and he knew that it was hopefully in good hands and that, that his business had been taken care of, it just, man, from the last couple of days, it was one of those, you could see the relief on him emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, in every way possible. I relate to, to Jesus here. I respect so much that this human side of Jesus, by all this theology is taking place, and the theology, again, folks, this is our foundation, our theology of what was accomplished, but do not miss the human side of this. He looks to his mom, and he points to a disciple, and he says, okay, this, this is your, your mom now, and mom, this is your son now. And he takes care of business. But now look what happens in the next verse, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Again, he's fulfilling prophecy. These things have been prophesied. If we go back to Psalms, before the whole invention of crucifixion, death by crucifixion, it wasn't even a thing back when this was prophesied, both in Isaiah and in Psalms. They didn't even have the concept of hanging somebody on a tree and letting them die there by that method. And yet we look back in Isaiah and we look back in Psalms and we begin to see a very detailed record that kind of goes along with what Christ was going to go through. And one of the things that was prophesied is that he was going to be, that he was going to, you know, maybe not say these exact words, I thirst, but that this would come and that they would give him, they would offer him this, this vinegar and, 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 uh, and this drink. But this is where I am going to get a little theological, guys. This human side that says, I thirst, because he really did thirst. This is the guy who created life and made our bodies need water. This is the Savior who created water that made the H2 and the O all together go together to make water. This is, 
The, the Bible says that nothing was made. In, in John chapter 1, it says nothing was made in this whole world that Christ himself did not make. Okay, he's the creator. I know we think that, you know, we, we kind of see him in the New Testament. But the whole Trinity is back there in Genesis. And, and we see in, the, in the, the following verses as we play out the Bible that Christ is really, the, you know, part of this creation and that he's the one creating things. And then John tells us, nothing was created that he didn't create. And yet this one who created life and a physical body that needs water, this one who actually invented water, is now subservient to those things. It's kind of like when he's praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and and the Bible says that when he's under that weight, and he's there, that God sent angels to, to minister to him. And it just blows me away because who created these angels? So his own creation comes back to minister to him. Folks, what a subservient love. What a subservient obedience. Know that our Christ would endure all these things. One of the great mysteries of the word is um, how God is 100% God, or Christ was 100% God, and 100% Humanity. I cannot explain that mathematically. If you're a mathematician, if you are into logistics, you can't figure that out. It's the mystery of, of what God has done there. It's kind of how the Trinity is the three and one. It's one and yet it's three. And yet, one of the truths about Christ is that he is 100% human and 100% deity. He is God. Now, it would be perfect. How many of you would really struggle if it said he was 50% man and 50% God? We'd go, that makes sense to me. There's going to be days that you're going to have your God side, feel kind of above things. There's going to be days you're going, man, this is my human side. But no, he's 100%. He was never not God. And when he, after the incarnation, after he took on flesh, he was never not human during that whole time. It's an amazing mystery of the gospel, and yet it is foundational when we begin to come into this. Because what we begin to see here is that God comes and he clothes himself in flesh, not just so that he can have a sympathetic view from heaven and go, man, it really looks hard down there. But that he put on the totality of flesh. And he put it on the totality of the human experience so that he would not just have sympathy, but that he would have empathy. You know the difference between those two? I mean, sympathy is, you know, basically, you know, I I agree with you that this is a sad thing. I can watch somebody go through something I've never experienced, and I can say, man, I can see that your heart is breaking. But I'm over here, and and I can look out and say, Sherry, man, man, I just know, and I feel bad for you, but I've never gone through that. So it's sympathetic. It's not a bad thing. But when we've walked in, in shoes, I mean, I just mentioned my father's passing. Because I've done over 500 funerals. I mean, it's one of those things. I, I've been around families. I've tried to minister to families for many, many, many years now. But I tell you one thing. When I lost my daddy, when we lost your mama, it's a different perspective. All of a sudden, when somebody else loses their mama or their daddy, you, you just want to go up and go, man, I don't even have words. But I certainly do have empathy because I know your heart's breaking right now. 
And God does not have this sympathetic view from heaven where he just looks down and goes, man, Ricky, it really looks tough down there. No, he comes down to a broken world, fully God, but fully human. And he experiences the fullness of that. Now, why does he do that? When he cries out, I thirst. But please understand, and I pray that this is theologically correct. If you're offended, you can write me. We'll have coffee. I'll thigh, and I can explain where I'm coming from on this, okay? But he says, I thirst, but I think we could just as easily put in there, I understand. Because Christ's limits, he didn't have to have thirst but he experienced thirst. He does all these things so that, that he cries out, I understand. Bobby, are you saying that just in a sentimental way? No, I'm saying this in a scriptural way. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Don't, don't ever just let your emotions take you to a conclusion. Back it up with scripture. Let the scripture be the foundation of where you would draw any conclusions that you would have. And here's where I draw my conclusion. Look what it says. Therefore, he that is talking about Christ had to be made like his brothers. And what? In every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In every respect, in every way. Jesus was human, but he was not superhuman. Okay? It's very important for us to grasp this. Fully God, fully human, but not superhuman. He's not Superman that can leap over buildings in one bound. He's not Spider-Man where he says, okay, let me just kind of shoot a web over here and take care of this. He could have. I mean, you can fill up some Marvel comic books with some exploits. Jesus could have done it, guys. But he doesn't. He does miracles. He shows this fullness of God, but he also shows throughout his ministry this fullness of humanity, not just for three years of ministry, but for the 30-plus years of his life. He's experienced the fullness of humanity. Grasp that, because what that means is that you'll never, ever have to say in your entire life, nobody understands. You can say my husband or my wife doesn't understand. You can say my mom and my dad don't understand. You can say my kids don't understand. You can say my friends don't understand. You can say your pastor doesn't understand. But folks, here's the one thing you can't say. My God doesn't understand. Why? Because he took on the fullness of this humanity so that we would never be left in that dark place. Because when we say nobody understands, folks, that's isolationism. And there's a darkness, there's a cave there that you can be buried in. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced it physically. You've experienced it emotionally. You've experienced it spiritually. Where there was just a dark place in your life. And you truly felt nobody understands. And somebody tries to begin to relate to you. And if anything, if you've been there before, it comes off condescending, doesn't it? I know what you're going through. No, you don't. I promise you, you don't. And yet, we can have this great belief that there is one that does understand. And he understands everything. Why? Because we're told right there that he became like us in every respect. Let me give you three things of, of 
kind of applications of this. Number one, Jesus understands our limits. He who could have been limitless, he was fully God. He could have went around with the Superman's chest where bullets fly off of him, but that's not what he chose to do. He experienced the fullness of humanity so that he would understand our limits. He's fully God. He's fully man. But it is one of those things that he did not use his powers for his own safety. He did not use his powers for his own benefit. He would heal people. He would do the miraculous. But notice that he never did those things. When he went out in the desert and he's under those temptations, he experienced those temptations just like you and I would. He didn't have on this bulletproof vest that every time Satan kind of threw a, a dart or a bullet at him, that it just bounced off. No, he really had to deny those temptations in the same way that you and I would have to deny those temptations. Grasp that, guys, because here's a God who says, I understand. When God came down and dwelt for those three decades, he allowed himself to experience firsthand the limits of the human body. His muscles ached when he had strenuous activity. Uh, His bones chilled in the cold of night or when he was on the seas and the winds would blow. Um, His lips would chap if he's going through the desert and it's dry. Do you you grasp that, how important that is? In one way, it may seem really trivial. Okay, so he could have chapped lips. Now that he fully embraced God, creator God, creator of all things, sovereign, holy God, experienced a lot of what you experienced. Really, in one way, theoretically, everything that you've experienced, except for sin. So he embraces and he knows our limits. Why did he do this? So that we could in every way. Look at what the next verse, remember in Hebrews, we just saw verse 17. Let's read the next verse with that. We'll go back to 17 and then look at the verse that follows it so that we really get the full context of this passage. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for our sins of the people. That's great, but look at the next verse. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, when we think about the word tempted, a lot of times we think, first and foremost, about sin. And certainly sin is a great temptation. But would you agree that your emotions can tempt you? Would you agree that just heaviness of life and despair and broken relationships can tempt you in a way? And yet Christ exposes himself to all these things so that when we come to those times, I mean, guys, have you ever been betrayed by a best friend? Not a friend, but a best friend? No. I hear that. No. And yet one of those in the immediacy of of Peter. I don't even know the guy. Not once, not twice, but three times. I don't even know this Jesus guy. I think you have me totally confused with somebody else that may just must look like me. I've got one of those faces. Guys, this broken world, this fallen world is full of heartbreak. And I don't say that to be discouraging and, and to put this heavy weight of darkness over us, but this is, this is not always a happy place. And Christ fully exposes himself to an unhappiness in a broken world. And he does it without limiting 
I mean, he does it limit in, in a limited form so that he doesn't have superhuman powers to make the blues go away. He has one thing, the same thing that you and I have, access to the Father. And he comes and he pours his heart out to the Father time and time again. Years ago, Dustin, I think you were a part of this. Did you do one of the 30-hour famines? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think every youth group did that at one point in time, especially back in the 90s. And we were going to be so cool. We're going to go 30 hours without food. So we can identify with poverty in the world. Now, I say it that way, kind of with a sarcastic tone. And I don't mean that to be sarcastic. But, but here's the thing, guys. We knew that in the 30 hours we were going to be able to eat again. We knew that, that we were going to be able to eat for the rest of our life for the most part. And at any point in time that we just really wanted to eat, we could have, you know, grabbed a Twinkie and an egg. The whole purpose was, okay, let's experience a little bit of what hunger feels like so that we can be sensitive to the hunger that really exists around the world. But here's the difference. We were doing this as this little trial balloon that we send up. 30 hours, let's see if we can do that. And we made sure that we had plenty of juices and stuff like that during those 30 hours or whatever it was. It wasn't complete poverty. We knew that a meal was coming at the end. We knew it was a limited time. We knew that we could have stepped out at any point in time that we wanted to. When Christ comes, guys, it's not a trial balloon. 30 years. Remember, ever have division in your family? He had division in his family. His own brothers and sisters look at him and mock him. That's why he says, John, this is now your mom. Mom, this is now your, your son. Because at that point, maybe his own brothers were not trustworthy. They don't come to become believers till later on. And so he, we see this, that he does not, he understands our limits. The second thing, really quickly, he understands our losses. We are a competitive bunch. One of the things we found out yesterday with the, the egg hunt we need to multiply the number of eggs we get by a thousand. Not a thousand more. We need to multiply the number that we had by a thousand. Because we had little kids and we tried to limit it just to the younger ones. But it was one of those, when we released, it was, it was like biblical proportion. I mean, it really was. All of a sudden, there were eggs all over that area in there and we opened up the gates and it was like ants moving on something. It was scary. I think we lost three children in the... the, the no, no. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things. And I'm going, man, here we got a little time. And they're competitive already. Already coming back crying. I only got four eggs. He's got six. And wins and losses, even in a little child. I won. I had the most eggs. You lost. You had fewer eggs. Here's what Jesus experienced for us. He experienced and he understands our losses. But when Peter denies Christ, I don't know if you've looked at the, the scripture real, real closely, but, but we see that Christ does experience that, okay? Go back and watch, and he sees that, that third denial. Can you imagine? Can you, can you imagine the heartbreak? Can you imagine, even though it was prophesied, when a Jesus comes up and kisses him on the cheek and says, okay, this is the guy that you need to rest. Can you imagine? You go back and look in other parts of the scripture where it just says, and, and they left the ministry of Jesus. Uh, more people 
really, we don't have the exact numbers, but probably as many people left the ministry of Jesus than followed Jesus. I know we like to say that the same people on this day that were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, are the same people that are saying, crucify him, crucify him. That's really, if you do a, your biblical study, it's probably two different groups, but it does represent humanity. Uh, it's, it's really a, a Galilean kind of group that's there saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. These are a lot of people that are non-Jewish. It's the Jewish people that are here crying out, uh, crucify him, crucify him. So there could have been a little bit of the mix of those people, but more than likely it's, it's kind of two different backgrounds. And yet it shows humanity. One minute, Hosanna, Hosanna. Man, you are the living God. The next week, crucify this guy. Give us this murderer, this known murderer, Barabbas instead. Jesus knows loss. Why? So that when you and I come into loss in our life, we can't crawl into a dark hole and say nobody understands. So I understand. Your spouse may not understand. Your parents may not understand. Your best friend may not understand. But you have one, folks. I, guys, I, I just promise you today, you have one that understands. And then the last thing. We see that he understands our longings. When I say longings, you know, we long to uh, retire in Hawaii one day. I mean, it's not going to happen, but, no, that's, I'm so sorry. Sorry, guys. Won't pat that uh, microphone again. Uh, We long to, uh, you know, when we say that I long to do something, I long to do this, I long to do that. And usually it's wants that we have. Very few of us, some have, but very few have longed for something that's really desperate and deep. And, you know, when we're talking about the 30-hour famine, I, I don't know that anybody here, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I doubt that too many of us have ever longed for food on a repeated basis. Maybe you have that experience and there was severe hunger in, in your background, but most of us have not had those kind of longings or that we were in a situation where we truly, if you grew up in a home when there was a lot of abuse, where you longed for safety, grew up in a, uh, home, we didn't say I love you, but I was always loved. I never had to fear for my safety. The longings that, we, that I'm talking about here is, is Christ cries out, I thirst. And what we see is a longing, a physical need uh, that he has there. But we also see that he's identifying with us that there's longings in his life, a true longing that wants to be satisfied, and yet he experiences that. Why? Just because we can have somebody that we can go back and say, he understands. He experienced limits. He experienced losses. He experienced longings so that you and I truly could have a great high priest, as it says in the Hebrews. Let me close with this. There's no way that even a loving spouse loving parent, hopefully a loving pastor, can come beside you and truly say, man, I, I just I understand. Sometimes we can have a level of empathy, but a lot of what we experience is sympathy. And it's well-placed and it's well-meaning. But there's very few times, even if you've shared a difficulty in life, that you know exactly what that other person went through. 
Here's your, here's your hope, guys. That knowing Christ, because he did experience every limit, he, he experienced every loss, he experienced every longing. When he cried out, I thirst, you have an all-sufficient Savior that in your really dark places of life, when nobody understands, that you know that there is one that fully understands. Not from some hierarchical throne in the world in the sky, and the heavens going, man, it looks tough down there. I will be praying for you. But one that came down and is willing to be right there by our side, die for us, experience every kind of loss and limit and longing in his life so that he could say one day, I understand. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for being a God. You are holy God. Your ways are not our ways, the scripture says. And yet, Father, this morning, we see that you have done everything, everything, Father, to come. You, dwell, you took on flesh the limitations of a, of a human body. You sweat it when it was hot. You shivered when it was cold. You ached when you did uh, too much work. Father, you, all these different things you experience, and all for one purpose, not to prove yourself. Father, you're holy God. You never have to prove yourself to anyone. But, Father, so that there would be a sufficient sacrifice. So that when we say, okay, I, I confess my sins to you. Thank you for dying for my sins. And rising again on the third day, that we would have theologically a sufficient Savior. But, Father, will you help us to grasp, even though we understand that theologically that's where it's really at, and, Father, that's our foundation, that, Father that even emotionally, even relationally, Father, that when you took on flesh and you exposed yourself to all these vulnerabilities, Father, it's because you had us in mind. You had nothing to prove. You gained nothing, Father. You are not more God because you did these things. You are God. You did them for one reason. Because you love us. So, Father, we praise you. We thank you. And, and Father, today, as Easter approaches and as we go through this Passion Week and, and maybe in our devotionals and maybe we're going to be reading about the false trials, the rejection of your disciples kind of turning. They wouldn't even stay awake and pray with you when you plead it three times. Hey, just pray with me. Father, all these things, all these dark places you've been so that when we come to our dark places, you bring light and you bring true empathy and you bring true victory. We love you, Father. We adore you. And now, Father, in this last song, we worship you. As we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.